0: Uh, just, I love the worship this morning. I, I think it was C.S. Lewis who, was, uh, who said that when you see something beautiful, part of the enjoyment of that beautiful thing is actually reflecting and expressing how beautiful it is. So, when you see an incredible sunset, if you're just standing alone and looking at it, it's not quite as special as if you've got somebody that you love alongside you that you can say, Oh, wow, look at those colors. Look at that. Even the, as you comment on it, it enhances your enjoyment of what you're seeing. And it's like that with God that, I mean, if you don't know why we're crazy about God, you're really missing out on something. He is just, He's so stunning and so beautiful and has done such beautiful things in our lives that when we when we sing and worship him it's not as if we have to do that because it makes him happy it's because it actually makes us happy reflecting on how awesome he is Amen. and uh, it's worship is uh it's a great thing i, I think it's one of the it, it's I, I think it's one of the things we were created to do as human beings and it's probably one of the most psychologically healthy things you can do as a human being but i it, it really is great um During my research for my preach this morning, um, can you just give me a time to finish it? Okay. I came across this article on the internet and it's it's about Saudi Arabian students studying in the UK. And it says this, Jeddah, 27th of January, 2008. Over 3,000 students from Jeddah, who are going abroad as part of the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, which is in its third year, attended a four-day orientation course offering some educational tips on how to behave in their host countries. The course, which took place at the Jeddah Hilton Hotel and was attended by some 3,240 young men and women, ended on Friday. Countries where the students will be going include Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Malaysia, the US, UK, France, Hungary, and Holland. And the reporter stressed that the students have to respect the traditions of the countries that they're traveling to and that they need to be able to manage their monthly allowances, which is always quite a good thing as a student. But um, it, just, uh, it struck me that it's important to know how to behave yourself in a certain context. And, you know, you get those lonely planet guides where on each country it sort of gives you tips on how should you behave in that country. What should you wear? What shouldn't you wear? What should you say? What shouldn't you say? And uh, we have not a lonely planet guard, but we have the unique planet Guide to life in the universe, which is also known as the Bible. And in it, it gives us some great tips on how to behave in God's household. So if you wouldn't mind turning with me to First Timothy chapter 3. And in there, we have some fantastic instructions on how we should behave in God's household. Now, when you go into a a certain culture's household, if you were to go into a Middle Eastern household, um, Nora and I have visited uh, Qatar, and in Doha, there are homes, and if you go into a, a, an Arab person's home, there's certain things. There's certain things you don't do. There's certain things you do do. There's certain things men do, and there's certain things women do, and there's certain things that women shouldn't do, and so on. And you have all this etiquette about culture in a certain household. Now, we as the church are God's household, and if you'll read with me in First Timothy chapter three, we're going to read from verse fourteen. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And he goes on to say, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body... He was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, I've studied First Timothy quite a lot in the last few months. And in fact, probably the last about four months, I've just really been digging into First Timothy. And one of the interesting things is that at the, at the, the culture of the town that uh, th- this church was in that, that Paul was writing to Timothy who was leading the church in Ephesus at that time was a, was a culture of promiscuity was a culture of fertility, goddess worship it was a culture where they believed that by secret passwords and certain spiritual exercises they could get their way up to know this God then the next God that was a higher God then the higher God, then a higher God and a higher God up to the highest God of all And Paul is actually sort of taking the mick out of them a little bit when he says the mystery of godliness is great because the word, the mysterion comes from the word muo, which means to close your mouth, that there are secrets. And these mystery religions had secrets. They had passwords and codes and things that you had to learn by being an, an initiate going to their, their meetings, and, and slowly they would decide whether you were good enough to learn the next password to the next level to evolve spiritually. And Paul's saying, the mystery of Christianity is so great that any child can sing it in a six-line song. The mystery of Christianity is that he was manifest in the flesh, that he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit, that he was seen by angels, that he was preached to the nations, that he was believed on in the world and taken up in glory. That is the whole deal in that little song. And and we're told in commentaries that this was probably a song that they sang in church. So that even the little children could tell you the mystery of Christianity. And so ordinary plonkers like you and I can come straight into relationship with the ultimate living God who created all things, whether you're Chinese, whether you're African, whether you are from the UK or the Americas, whoever you come from, any culture group, there is absolutely no barrier to any person whose IQ might be up in the 150s or IQ may be down in the 30s, you can enter into this relationship with the living God simply through Jesus Christ Amen. and uh, that is just like unbelievably good news you don't have to go through all spiritual exercises you don't have to get all perpendicular you don't have to learn a whole lot of stuff you just have to be humble you just have to come to God and so we have this very simple song that he was manifest in the flesh he was vindicated by the Spirit. And the, 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 the next line, he was seen by angels. The, the Greek word is angelos, which can also mean messengers. And I prefer that translation. He was seen by messengers because to me it's the apostles that actually saw him from the time of his baptism through to his death and his, his burial, resurrection and ascension. And then it says, and he was preached to the nations. That's all peoples. And he was believed on in the world, not just in one little place. And he was taken up into glory. And he's going to come back from there. So it's like the whole kingdom message in a nutshell there. Simple, easy. Any, any child can understand it. But the amazing thing is that Paul says that this incredible message, the church, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now I've wrestled with that. What does that mean? The church is the pillar and foundation of the church, does the, of, the, of the truth. Does the, does the church make the truth? Does the, and I, what I've come to understand by it is what Paul means is that you will find the truth about reality in the church. The church holds the truth. The church keeps the truth. That's why we've got to have such a passionate love for the word of God that we don't veer off from the truth. We keep renewing ourselves in the truth. The reformers used to say uh, the, the, that there should be the, that the church is reformed, but it should always be reforming because we're always learning and coming back to the truth, coming back to the truth all the time. Uh, the church, uh, I, when I was... Very new in ministry, I I, I think uh, we'd maybe been, uh, I I don't think I was even ordained yet, but we, we were, I was studying and we were living in this flat and I had this vivid dream, the one night. And in this dream, I saw this cross made out of gold and there was golden light streaming out from the cross in all three dimensions. And it was as if it was filling the universe. And, uh, and in the middle of the cross, etched into the cross, where the two beams of the cross met, was this reference, EPH for Ephesians, like you would write an abbreviated Bible reference, EPH 123. And at that st- stage, I didn't know what that, what that verse said. So I woke up in the morning... And I just, And you know, sometimes God loves to communicate. He's just such a communicating God. We really need to pay more attention to our dreams and stuff we hear, sometimes just songs you hear. God speaks to you through words of a song. I woke up the other night, and, and I just had the song going through my mind. "People get ready. There's a train coming. Don't need no baggage. You just get on board. You know that old spiritual. And uh, it's from a, a seal album called Soul. Really good album. And, uh, and, um, and I thought, it's funny how you can wake up in the middle of a night and just have a song going through your head. And I, I kind of thought, oh, you know, okay, roll over, go to sleep. And then I just felt the Holy Spirit say, no, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you through the song. I want you to be ready. There's something going to be happening in your life. There's something happening in Thameside Church. There's a train coming. And you don't need any baggage. I don't want you to take any baggage. I just want you to get on board. It only takes faith to hear the diesels humming. You don't need a ticket. You just thank the Lord. Oh, sorry. God's a very communicative God. And why did I go down that little... Ephesians 1.23, I just saw this thing, so I, I woke up, I turned in my Bible, and Ephesians one twenty three says, the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Wow, I'm like, whoa, you know, that's not these four walls, that's us while he's in this place. You know, that's us, we we like, we're the, we, we, we're the fullness of his body, it's like he, he's so passionate about us, he believes in us so much. He, he, we're the apple of his eye. There's things he wants us to do. There's stuff he wants changed in, the, in this world. There's people he wants impacted and touched. And we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the pillar and foundation of the truth. You can't underestimate. I mean, you can't, sorry, not underestimate. You can't overestimate how important your everyday role is the way you greet people, the way you smile, the way Jesus shines out of you. You are the pillar and foundation of the truth. You are. It's not a building. It's not a, some sort of structure that's the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's you and I. We are the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Man, what a, what, a, what, a, what a trust has been put in our hands. And it says that we are the church of the living God. We're not the church of some dead God. We're the church of the God who's right in this building right now. His spirit is in this place. He's, he's touching hearts and bodies and He's alive and He's in this place. And it says that we are God's household. And in First Timothy, he's saying here that I've written these things to you that just in case I can't come to you, because if I come to you, I'll tell you all this stuff. But if I can't make it, then I want you to just take what I've written here. And this is the stuff that's going to help you understand how you should behave yourself in God's household. So, it's like a bit like the lonely planet guide to how you should behave yourself. This is the unique planet guide on how to behave yourself in God's household. So, with this incredible privilege that we have, I want to just point out six things that are about how to conduct yourself in God's household. And by the way, I don't think we live in a lonely planet. Any planet where A sparrow can't fall to the ground without God being intensely interested and engaged in that is not a lonely planet. The angels, I think the angels around us right now, I think the the Holy Spirit is is obviously definitely here. God is intensely interested in this planet and, and engaged in it, engaged in your life, whatever was going on in it. Right, I I may not get to talk about all six things, but uh, let me tell you what they are, because it's almost like I feel like each chapter of 1 Timothy gives one really big sort of instruction on how to conduct ourselves in God's household. For me, chapter 1 is primarily about doing everything, making every effort to save sinners. Make every effort to save sinners. Chapter 2, for me, is about... Being a people that pray a lot. Chapter 3 is about nobody should be a leader in God's household. Well, let me rephrase it. Chapter 3 is about the basis of all leadership in God's household is character and family. Chapter 4 is that... We are always being an example for good or for bad. doesn't matter. Wherever you are, it's not just now in church, but tomorrow morning or at 5 o'clock this afternoon, you are going to be being an example to somebody for good or for bad. Chapter 5 is about developing a culture of honor. Chapter 6 is about being content with what we have. Those, for me, are very key things about living in God's household. So let me just try and unpack that a bit. So the first key thing is in chapter 1, if you want to turn there. I think a key verse for me, I've I've tried to give a key verse for each principle in each chapter. And for me, the key verse in chapter 1 is verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. I believe this is the key verse of this chapter. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst." Notice Paul didn't say, "I was the worst. say, "I am the worst." So that, for me, is the key verse in that thing. This saying, trustworthy saying, deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world. To save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul writes about God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Um, In chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, he speaks about God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In chapter 4, verse 10, He writes about, We have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. And uh, in verse 4 of chapter 1, it tells us that God's work is by faith, which means that if we're going to make every effort to save sinners, and I know I'll come to this in a second, but to talk about people as sinners is sort of seen as not quite PC, but uh, I'll explain that in a second. But Verse 4 of chapter 1 tells us that God's work is by faith, which means that we have to help our friends and neighbors and people around us to understand that you come into God's household not by uh, uh, being religious and not by doing a whole lot of spiritual exercises and religious things, but that God only welcomes people into his household who know that they're sinners and who understand that they're accepted and welcomed into his household just because of what Jesus did yeah. and by believing on that. We've got to help people understand that, that God's work is by faith. It's not by any do's or don'ts or have to's or, or whatever. Yeah. Why don't you read with me verse 13 to 17? In verse 13, Paul says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Okay, we've read 15 already, so jump to 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience. (laughs) Unlimited patience. As an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, in, In verse 13... Uh, Sorry, verse, yeah, verse 13. Paul says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. The Greek for violent man means somebody who inflicts pain on people and has a sadistic pleasure in it. So what Paul is referring to, he's not just saying, hey man, you know, I I really did believe the Old Testament law stuff. And so I was like trying to uh, persecute the church and, you know, I was wrong, sorry, but... He's actually confessing something deeply disturbing about himself. He's saying, actually, I was the kind of person that actually had a sadistic streak in me that when I went into Christian homes, I didn't just go in there to arrest them. I went in there to actually hurt them, which to me tells me that he must have thrown a few punches and a few kicks and have smashed a few heads against walls. And actually, when when he saw the blood and the weeping and the pain, there was something in him that was like, I get pumped by this. And he's saying Jesus could take a man like that and he could reach in and, and pour his grace abundantly on a man like me, the worst of sinners. I was hurting his people, and yet he reached in and he loved me and he saved me and he, he, he poured out not only his grace on my life but faith and love into my life as well. It's an incredible thing. And uh, Paul once. Uh, in, in writing this to Timothy, he wants us to understand that God has such unlimited patience for reaching people. You know, we, like, we talk with somebody once or twice and we think, oh, they don't get saved, <laughs> you know. Actually, we, we at the moment are working through a program in our church uh, that's, that's produced by Bethel Church. Uh, not Bethel, by um, Willow Creek called Just Walk Across the Room. And Bill Hubbell shares this testimony of how he sailed with this guy and talked with this guy and, and, and just loved this guy for seven or eight years before this guy had there was any sign that he had any responsiveness to Jesus Christ. And he said at one point they had a Christmas dinner together. And as they were walking out, he said, I don't know what made me say it, but he said, as I was putting my mate's jacket on his shoulders again, he said, this is a guy that I had dragged out of party tents, paralytic drunk, who had done stuff that was just really just really not good. And he said, as I was just putting the the jacket around his shoulders as he was leaving my home, he said to him, hey, soup, because he used to call him super, hey, soup. I just don't actually want to go to eternity without you, bud. And I I thought, man, God, please give me that kind of a heart for my neighbors, for my friends. I just think, I don't want to go to eternity without you. And so I'm just going to keep on loving you, and I'm going to keep on chiseling, and I'm going to keep on praying, and I'm going to keep on talking to you, and I'm going to just keep on being your genuine friend. Because I don't want to go to eternity without you. One of the things that... that, uh, Bill Harbles really encourages us to do is to, is to have our testimony and to be able to articulate uh, our, our, our testimony about what Jesus did in our lives in less than a hundred words. Because he said, he said, I can't, he said, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've sat with people who don't know who I am And and he says, I asked him a question. So, like, uh, you know, what's your spiritual journey been? And he says, I have people who start telling me their stories. And he says, some of them are the most weird stories. Some of them are the most complex stories. Some of them are so long, he says, like, I want to sort of, you know, hope my clothes are still in fashion by the time the guy finishes telling me the story. But... and he's saying we need, to, we need to be short, we need to be to the point, we need to be really unreligious in the language we use, and we need to really not be superior. Amen. And so I found it such a fascinating exercise. You know, if you were to go to the, uh, 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 let's say you were to go to a chiropractor, and your, and your friends knew, hey, I've, I've really been in seriously bad pain in my back. When, when, when they see you again and they know you've been to the chiropractor, what they're going to want to know is, how have you changed? Because they're going to judge the effectiveness of that chiropractor and how good is that thing by how you were before and how you are after. And so we really need to... Under, I found this a fascinating exercise. I sat down at my computer, I thought about it for a few days, and I thought, how do I put down in a hundred words? What is the main thing about me that changed because of Jesus? What's the main thing about me? You think about it for you. What's the main thing about you that you say, ah, before I was, Jesus came into my life, and now I, do you want to hear mine? I'll try and do it in less than 100 words. Probably because I haven't really learned it, it's going to come out a little bit more. So if anybody gets the tape and counts the words, then I, don't, I, don't to, I don't want to disappoint you. So... My dad wanted me aborted. He went on to become a serious alcoholic and he committed suicide. I grew up feeling that the words on every cell of my DNA were not worth it. I try to reverse and dull that feeling with alcohol, with drugs with being attractive to the opposite sex, with trying to excel at everything I did for recognition, but just always empty. Then I watched the transformation in my wife through her new relationship with Jesus Christ. And she introduced me to him. He forgave the mess in my life. He made me know that I'm adopted as his son. And it's like he reversed on every cell of my DNA those words and put instead the words, totally worth it. God will never disown me. And that's why I love him so much. That's my story. In 30 seconds. You have a story you can tell in thirty seconds. I really want to encourage you to try and get it down and and get it inside you. The second instruction on, on how to conduct ourselves in God's household is to pray a lot. Be a people who pray a lot. If God were to come walking through his home and he were to to see you talking with somebody who doesn't know him and you just really love them and you're trying to just share something of, of what God's done in your life with them, he's like, hey, well done, bud. This is wonderful. I love my home being like this. And if he were to turn to you and you were really praying a lot in your life, everywhere you go, when you're at work, when you're closing deals and so on. You'll be saying, Yes, this is, this is how I like my home to be. And uh, he really, the, 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 in that first verse of chapter 2, Paul says, I urge you, first of all, it's like the, the, this is my first priority, is that you. Make requests and prayers and intercession and thanksgiving for all men. Now, we could say, well, is Paul just being poetic He uses four different words for prayer? Or is there some sense, is there some weight in that? I think there's some weight in it. The first word, the word requests, is the word in Greek, deasis. Which comes from a word which means to beg by binding yourself around. So if I if I were to uh, uh, you know come to Tim here and I, I want to really ask him something and I bind myself around his legs, I'm saying, Tim, please, please, buddy, um, could I have a bar one? <laughs> or oh, oh, Mars bar? Sorry, <clears throat> trying my roots and. Uh, That's what that word means. It's like seriously passionate. It's like, it's like Jacob with the wrestling with the, with the angel and saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. It's like laying hold of things and people and neighbors. And, and uh, I want you to notice how, how very closely tied in praying is with point number one of making every effort to save the lost. And because it says, that this pleases God who wants all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. So it's very tied in with, 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 with people's lives being changed. You know, I'm, I'm purposefully this morning not using the terrible E-word that makes all Christians go, oh, sorry, not all, 90% of Christians go, and it's the terrible E-word, evangelism. I'm not using that word because actually you just got to be who you are you don't have to knock on doors. You know, you just got to be who you are. If if that if, if knocking on doors makes you pump, then go and knock on doors. But if knocking on doors makes you just want to die a thousand deaths, then don't go knock on doors. Just be who you are. But but just you, there's got to be something in you that just makes you want to connect in love to people. And prayer is a very important part of that. So the first word, deasis, is really to bind yourself. Second word, that's in the NIV transit. Translated prayer is the word prosyuche, which can also mean to worship. So it's kind of praying that is that is delighting in God and declaring His goodness. And so on. The third word, intercession, is a a very interesting word. Um, it's uh, sorry, let me just find myself in my notes. Um, it's the word in tukh. His, and uh, it means special supplication or intercession. Now, let me just read this to you. This word has a very interesting history. It's the noun of the verb entunkanen. Originally, the verb meant simply to meet or to really connect with someone. Then it went on to mean to hold intimate conversation with someone. Then it acquired a special technical meaning It meant to enter into a king's presence and submit a petition to him. That tells you how highly Paul viewed prayer. Is that you and I would come into a king's presence to submit a petition to him about somebody else or something else. Someone wrote in a poem, You are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such... None can ever ask too much. When you, if if there was a situation with Paul that um, I wanted to make intercession for, it means I wouldn't be talking to Paul about it. I'd be talking to somebody else about Paul. So if I come to Ants and say, "Hey, Ants," Can I make intercession for Paul? I really want to ask you, please, could you, whatever, you know? And that, that's what our praying is. We come to God on behalf of somebody else. There are people I come to God on who, who are friends of my children's friends or parents of my children's friends. And there are people who I come to God and say, Father, this person doesn't give you the time of day. This person doesn't even know you person gives you no recognition. person gives you no thanks. But I want to stand before you, Father. And I want to ask you, God, please, can you make the light that shone in my heart? Because you did it, God. I didn't do it. Can you make the light that shone in my heart? Please, can you make it shine in Ian's heart? Father, I'm asking you, just connect the electrode somehow and make that light shine in his heart. And use me in any way you can, God. That's what intercession's about. And the third word, thanksgiving, is the word Eucharistia. And, it, and it's a happy word. So it's a word for just joyfully giving thanks to God. And that's got to be happening in our praying. Just before I move off the thing of prayer, there's one little thing that is very important for me to point out. that in God's house, as God comes walking around his house, his Holy Spirit, he's he's aware of everything that's happening in his house. As he comes walking around his house, he actually wants to see men praying. You know, the, the humans with the dangly bits. He wants to see them praying. It's not just a a generic reference to humankind when Paul writes, I want to see men everywhere lifting holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. He's saying, I want to see males praying. It's really important that he wants to see men praying over their wives. He wants to see men praying over their kids, praying over their homes, praying over the nation praying over their churches, that when the, when the church has a corporate prayer time, he wants to see more men in that prayer time than women. You probably would like to see exactly the same number, but I'm just trying to emphasize this a little bit, that God actually wants to see men praying. That's something that's good in his, is in his house. When he walks around his house and he sees the men Just like uh, slobbing out in front of the TV. Oh, babe, you can do the praying. Uh, You can handle the stuff with praying for the kids. You can do the Bible reading. God does not like that in his house. He'd like to come and get your ear a little bit and say, Hey, bud. (laughs) Can I just loosen your neck for you a bit? (laughs) i need you to be praying. And uh, I really want to just throw out a challenge to you men. Praying can be the most exciting thing on planet Earth. It can be the most boring thing on planet Earth too. But you make it of it what it is. And you can make a decision. Prayer can be so exciting. I mean, prayer is just, to me, the very best time of my day, the very best time of every day for me is the start of my day when I get in God's presence. And honestly, I'm not telling you this because I'm trying to be super religious and spiritual. God will search me out and... Give me such a smack if I am. The best part of my day is when I wake up and I sit in my bed. I stay in my bed. I sit up against the headboard. I have a cup of tea next to me. And I spend time just reading the word and talking to my dad. That's the best time of the day for me. I tell you, I just like, it centers me. It orientates me. It, just, it makes the day right. It, it's so cool. And it's so powerful. Uh, It's just, yeah. So, third point is, um, and I'm not going to really dwell very much on this, is all leadership in God's household should be based on character and family. And if I were to separate it between character and family, I would say the two character issues is number one, that you need to be beyond reproach. And the, the Greek literally means uncatch-outable. And that's, you know, guys, that doesn't mean that guys who are in leadership, they have a certain moral standard, and then all the rest of us can just kind of, oh, well, thanks, you guys do it, you know, everybody can look at you. Actually, those guys are just meant to be an example so that we all like that. So in every one of our Christian lives, we should be uncatch-outable. If somebody came with a fine tooth comb and took your bank account and combed through it and looked at, uh, uh, can I have a look at your, the history of your internet websites you visited and combed through that and said, okay, what have you been reading? What have you been watching on TV? Uh, how have you treated people around you? What have your jokes been like? What they, we should be outable. And the, the, the second characteristic in terms of character is that we should be mature. And then in terms of the things of family, you should have a good marriage and family life. Your kids should obey you with respect. The three things that we used to try and really work into our kids, when we give you an instruction, we expect you to obey us straight away, to do it properly, and to do it with a good attitude. If you default in any of those three things, you're even in more trouble than you were before. (laughs) So if we say to you, can you clean your room? and then you roll your eyes and you go and do it 15 minutes later, buddy, you're in serious trouble. Because we expect you to do it straight away, and we expect you to do it properly. And if you go in and you just kick your underwear under the bed and throw the socks and everything and just get the cupboard door closed and it's like bulging, (laughs) but uh, you're in trouble. You didn't do it properly. You don't do it with a good attitude. And these are things that are important things that our children need to obey us properly and, and, and with a good attitude. And straight away. And then also we need to be hospitable in our homes. Our homes need to be very warm and, and open places. Anyway, I'm going to move on. Number four. We're always being an example for good or for bad. And the key verse here is 1 Timothy 4.12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers or of believers. Set an example of a believer in your speech, in your life, in love, in faith and purity. And that just about covers everything you and I can do in any day. So we're to be an example all the time. And then I'm going to just move on quickly from that one to the fifth point. As far as it depends on you, create a culture of honor. And I just want to dwell a little bit on this one. A key verse for me is chapter 1. Oh, sorry, verse one of chapter five. If you got your Bibles, verse one of chapter five. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Then it goes on to talk about honoring widows. In the NRV it says, give proper recognition in verse. Three, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But actually, the literal translation is give proper honor to the widows who are really widows. And it's it's talking about honoring them because he goes on to describe what they should be like. That they should be over 60, have been faithful to their husband, well known for good deeds, uh, bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, devoting themselves to all kinds of good deeds. And he's saying, honor people like that. Honor them. And then in in verse 17, he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church uh, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And then, if you carry on to chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Those who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy. And in the NRV, it says full respect, but it's actually full honor. Is the literal translation. Pastime. Full honor. All honor. It's a culture of honor that Paul is trying to engender out of this church. And uh, the, the at the. At the beginning there, he's saying, do, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but treat him as if you were father, as if you were, were your father. Now, I, I, I remember growing up with my dad. Although my dad was an alcoholic, I, I had a tremendous respect for my dad. And I, I want to tell you, when I came to my dad, if I wanted to disagree with my dad or, or, or sort of challenge him on something and so on, I, te- I came very carefully. Not because he would just flare up and go off the thing, but because I had a huge respect for him. And so I would come to him and say, Hey, Dad, um, you know that thing? Well, and we, we grew up on a farm. I grew up with six kids, three boys, three girls. So we had the, the edges knocked off us. You needed to show respect. If I didn't show respect to my dad, not only would my dad deal with me, I think my older brother would have given me a good clout around the ears. There's a culture of respect and honor. And Paul is saying... Any icon in this church, if I go to, let's say this gentleman here, slightly older than me, when I go to him, there needs to be in my heart that I would treat him like I would have treated my dad. Even if there's something I need to address in his life. And women who are older than me, that I treat them like I would treat my mom. And men who are younger than me, I don't treat them as if I'm their dad. Like this young man, Met, who's fired up for Jesus. Wonderful that the, he should never ever feel from me that I'm patronizing toward him because I'm always to treat him as if he's my brother. And so even a little six-year-old in my church, I don't want anybody calling me anything other than my first name, whether you're four years old, six years old, or 60 years old, because you're my brother. And it says then to treat sisters with absolute purity, treat, treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now, call her here you are, here. Call is a younger woman. The, the expectation in God's house is that I should treat her as if she were my sister. No patronizing, no looking down on her, but Paul adds the proviso with absolute purity, which means that I give her the highest respect, which I can give a woman, is that I do not see any woman, at, you know, I mean, younger, beautiful woman, that there's not a sexuality in how you treat them, but with absolute purity, and there, there is, I don't think a man can give a woman any higher accolade than to treat her with absolute purity. And he's not saying, you're just like a sex object on two legs. But he's saying, I respect you for who you are, for your gifting, your intellect, your abilities, everything you can bring. I respect you as a person. That's why I see pornography as such a destructive thing. Not only does it break down a, a, a healthy a, a sex life in a marriage... But it also makes men begin to see women in a two-dimensional way. And it breaks down you treating women with absolute purity. It breaks down a culture of honor in the church. And I believe that in every way, I mean, this this goes for the the range of of older men, younger uh, younger men, older women, younger women, uh, widows, elders, employees or masters. In every facet of life, we should be showing honor to people. They have a culture of honor. I mean, when we when we were at Bethel Church in California, where Bill Johnson leads the church, they have they have fostered in their church a culture of honor over and over and over again. And so we we were sitting in the church, and there's like there's all these kids in the front of the church. They just are sitting on the floor or standing or whatever. And they call somebody to come up, even if it's to, to do the notices or whatever. The kids stand up and they applaud the person coming up to the front. They, and you can see in their faces, they look like so amped for the person. They just think, man, you, you must have, for you to have the, 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 the right to stand up and speak to us, there must be something good and pure in your life and we want to honor you. It's just, I tell you, to be in that environment... We we found Bethel Church just such a breath of fresh air to us. The people are so happy. There's such a sense of joy in that place, and I believe a lot of the root of that is a culture of honor. People honor each other and encourage each other and speak well to each other and and say, "Hey, well done," and "Go for it," and "Really good word," and you know, "That's a good word right there." They'll say, you know, really, they encourage each other. God stood up to speak to us. And on, on the training course we did there. And the guys whistle and shout and jump around at the back just to honor the guy before he's even said a word. Good. Culture of honor. And to conclude, just in the final thing in, in chapter 6, and I said I was going to be giving you a verse in every everyone, but I've kind of forgotten to do that along the way. But just really basically be content with what you have. Paul, in the... Chapter 6 and verse uh, 6 onwards, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. I mean, I think something got lost in the translation somewhere with the whole prosperity gospel, because it's just a kind of a me, me, me thing. Actually, we're meant to... I believe the church is meant to handle a lot of money. and uh, But I, meant to, I believe it's meant to be because of generosity, not because we just like the Dead Sea, you know, gimme, 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 gimme. But because God trusts us because we are generous. And I, I believe God loves, loves to bless. I'm not saying we should all be living in a shoebox and, you know, like the Monty Python thing, pure luxury, you know. Uh, I lived a hole in the road, you know, (laughs) licked the tar and all that. But but I believe that we should, God loves to bless and he loves us to prosper, but it's because he wants us to be generous. And uh, he says, uh, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. And pierce themselves with many griefs. And I try to just write down the summary. And I think getting into debt is one of the symptoms of being eager for money. Because it's just eager for credit. And it's like having money so that you can spend. And uh, one of the things I wrote down, I just try to summarize all the things that he says happen when we're eager for money. When we're not content with what we have. And he says, temptation, you get trapped. You get many foolish and harmful desires, ruin, destruction, all kinds of evil, wandering from the faith, and piercing yourself with many griefs. It doesn't sound like a very good way to live. And uh, he goes on at the end of the chapter to just saying, come on people to be generous. And uh, a great antidote to, to, to the spirit of mammon, which is like a spiritual power that tries to get, get us to give in to trusting in materialism. Um, a great antidote to that is to be generous. Um, and uh, somebody once said, never compare upwards, always compare downwards. When you start driving along, I mean, we drove along a road l- last night, and it's like Millionaire's Row, you know, you just, whoa, this whoa, this house, Hi look at this one, you know. And then if you're comparing, I think, gee, we, so, we, we just live in this little house in Reading, it's like, it's so small, and we've got three bedrooms, it's so... And, uh, Go, go to Malawi or go to Mitchell's plane or go somewhere, and, and then you think, sheesh, we live in this house in Reading. Whew. You know, we could buy sort of half of Mitchell's plane with what our house costs, you know. Kind of, I'm not trying to be facetious, I'm just saying, we compare down, don't compare up. Be content with what you have. Make you a really happy person. So, if I can just remind you of the these things that are really great in God's household is by every means to save sinners. And remember, you're probably one of the worst. So don't look down your nose at anybody. And somebody gets on the, the tube and they're smelling of alcohol and they're unsteady on their feet. Don't you dare look down your nose at them. Pray a lot. And men, can I cannot challenge you to be a prayer. And to pray of your families and your household. That all leadership be based on character and family. Remember, you're an example every minute of every day, for good or for bad.